The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. We're going to continue in the gospel of Luke. Uh, if, if, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we took about four weeks and we, we really looked at the Lord's Prayer. And we looked at it for three weeks in particular, and then last week we, we had a service where, um, man, I wish I really would have been here. It was a time of, of yes, preaching, because we won't have a Sunday where there's not preaching, but then also a time where uh, a particular young man who had opportunity to come up and lead in prayer, but the whole aim was to get the church to pray. It was to set the table to where you would engage, because I never want you to think that you're a spectator. There's no such thing as a spectator. Every person that is part of God's body, his bride, his church, is needed. And so you all uh, enjoyed that corporate prayer and, and time together. Well, now Luke is going to transition us back to the unfolding drama that's really been happening in his journey towards Jerusalem, right? That's where we're at in the narrative. Jesus is headed towards his death. But we've got a lot of chapters before we get to that moment. I think what we're going to see, though, is we're going to see why prayer and, and, and the Holy Spirit in particular at the end of the prayer was emphasized greatly. I don't, I, think, I don't think they're disconnected. I think we can make the mistake of thinking that. Luke is masterful in his writing. Now, he has a lot of help, namely the Holy Spirit, right? He has a lot of help in writing, but his writing is very succinct for, remember, O Theophilus, but also for us. And, and so why is he focusing prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit right now at this time? I think you're going to see it. And, and the reason is, is because ministry's war. It's, it's just war. And if you think of anything else, I would encourage you to get in the game. I, I really would, because Jesus is heading towards his death and everything's going to get ramped up. And the guys, man, and, and the women, his disciples, right? You have the 12 men and possibly, you have tons, he has tons of disciples around him. They are going to see spiritual warfare in a way that they haven't seen. And by the way, they've seen a lot. They've seen demons cast out. But what they're going to see is the religious who refuse to see continue to double down on their sin. And that's where we're at. So let's look at it. Luke eleven fourteen through 16 is where we're going to begin. Now, so he just, once again, prayer ended. All right, we, we had some time of learning how to pray. Let's get back at it. Now, now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and all the people marveled. Pause. That should be exactly what happens, right? When you, when you see a demon cast out, a mute man speak, praise God. Okay, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Hmm. While others, look, it says, to test him, kept seeking him a sign from heaven. <laughs> now, listen, attempt to imagine for a moment this scene. Jesus cast out a demon that's tormenting a man, right? And, and it's causing him to be mute. No, no doubt it's causing much havoc in this particular man's life. And the people see this miracle, and they marvel. That's the right response, right? It seems like the right response. Everyone knew it was a miracle, and they are all praised. But not everybody. Not everybody. It, not everyone's rejoicing. Look what it says. But some of them. Who are them? Matthew tells us. Luke doesn't tell us. I'm not sure why, but Matthew tells us in his account. They're haters. <laughs> they're just some Jesus haters. Who are they primarily? Pharisees. 
Matthew tells us they're Pharisees. They are, man, they are the, they, they're the religious pastors of that time. And they see this, and, and they're, they're really struggling with it. Je- Jesus' enemies found a way to wet blanket a miracle. It's really sad, right? They, they didn't like Jesus, to put it mildly. I think you'll see that unfold more and more as we continue through the G- Gospel of Luke. But they couldn't deny his power to heal and cast out demons. So instead, what they do is, is they step onto the scene and they create this, this story, right? Why would people respond so negatively is a question I had. Why do I respond negatively when I see God working in a particular way? I, I've done that. I've maybe said, well, that's a, that church is kind of flaky. It's kind of weird. Why do I do that? Why do they do that? Why do you do that? See, I think it's, it's this for them, for sure. It's really difficult to compete for people's respect with a man who cast out demons. Right? Like, you know, follow me. I mean, they're rabbis. They need a following. I want to teach you the Bible. And Jesus is just healing folks. Right? He's casting out demons. He's water skiing on water. He's feeding thousands with a kid's lunchable. He's, it's really hard. Like, you're watching all your followers just, guys, thought we were friends. Yeah, but look, I mean, this man's got bread that you don't got. And instead of them saying, I'm going to go too. <laughs> They, they create this, this crazy story, and they double down on their sin, and they attribute Jesus' extraordinary powers to the work of the devil. That's as bad as it gets. It's awful, right? But here's the deal. We're going to get to these guys, right? But I think there's a temptation for us in this moment to, to continue to listen to these upcoming scenes in the text, and and Jesus is going to be lighting up some Pharisees. He really is. And, and the temptations for all of us to be like, yes, get them, Jesus. But, but here's my caution. There's a little Pharisee in all of us. Yeah, there, there really is. The, the natural bent to all humans that are fallen, which is, by the way, all of us, is, is we're bent towards law, we're bent towards religion. We're bent towards judging. We, we, we're just bent towards it. And if you could be honest, you know that's true. So before we get into heavy text for the next many months, cheers. By the way, gospel of grace will always be present, I promise you, okay? I want to share a, a funny, lighthearted little story that might help highlight it, but add a little bit of laughter to it. So if you'll indulge me, I don't normally do this. I'm going to read you a story. All right, so Gadsden, Alabama, and I might read it with an accent. I'm sorry, I've tried not to do it all week, but it's coming. So the seven deadly sins, greed, sloth, envy, lust, gluttony, pride, and wrath were all committed Sunday during the twice annual bake sale at St. Mary's of the Immaculate Conception Church. In total, 347 acts of sins were committed at the bake sale with nearly every attendee committing at least one of the seven deadly sins as outlined by Gregory the Great in the 5th century. My quote, my cookies, cakes, and brownies are always the highlight of the church bake sale, and everyone says so, said parishioner Connie Barrett, 49, openly committing the sin of pride. Sometimes, she says, I'm even amazed at how well my goodies turn out. Fellow parishioner Betty Wicks agreed, Every time I go past Connie's table, I just have to buy something, said Wicks, 
who committed the sin of gluttony at every St. Mary's bake sale, as well as most Friday nights at Old Country Buffet. I simply can't help myself. It's just all so delicious. By the way, we take Jesus very seriously, ourselves not so much, right? So you can talk to me afterwards, but there is a point to my madness. Hang in there. The popularity of Barrett's mouth-watering wares elicited the sin of every, every envy in every fellow vendor. Connie has a fantastic book of recipes her grandmother gave her, and she won't share them with anyone. Church organist Georgia Brandt said, This year I made my white chocolate blondies and thought that they'd be a big hit. But most people just went straight to Connie's table, got what they wanted, and left. All the while, Connie just stood there with this look of smug satisfaction on her face. It took every ounce of strength in my body to keep from going over there and really telling her off. While the sins of greed and wrath were each committed dozens of times at the event, Barrett and the longtime bake sale rival Penny Cox brought them together in full force. Penny said she wanted to make a bet over whose table would make the most money, said Barrett, exhibiting greed. Okay, whoever lost would have to sit in the dunk tank at St. Mary's Summer Fun Festival. I figured it's for such a good cause. A little wager couldn't hurt. Beside, I always bring the church the most money anyway, so I couldn't possibly lose. Moments after agreeing with the wager, Cox began to become wrathful when Barrett, the bake sales co-chair, grabbed the best table location under the pretense of having to keep the coffee machine full. Cox attempted to exact revenge by reporting the alleged Barrett missed deed to the church priest. The sin of lust was also rearing its ugly head at the bake sale, largely due to the presence of Melissa Wyckoff, whose shapely 20-year-old redhead, whose family recently joined the church. While male attendees oogled at Wyckoff, the primary object of lust was for females, as they were looking at the boyish father Mark. We're almost done. Though attendees feeling the lust of Wyckoff and O'Connor were never acted on, they did not go unnoticed. I mentioned to Father Mark O'Connor that I had seen candles at Connie's house, and I wouldn't be surprised one bit if she stole those from the church closet, said Cox, who also committed the sin of sloth by forcing her daughter to set up the man in her booth and gossip it all the day with her friends. Perhaps if he investigates this, by this time next year, Connie won't be the co-chair of the bake sale, and her place will now somehow be mine, who's willing to rotate the choicest of tables. You know, there's something not right about Melissa, said an envious, wrathful bake sale participant, Jilly Brandon, after her husband, Craig, offered Wyckoff one of the right crispy treats, welcomed her to the parish. She might have just moved from here from California, but that red dress of hers should get her kicked out of the church, they said. According to St. Mary's treasurer, Beth Ellen Croyle, informal church sponsor events are notorious breeding grounds for seven deadly sins. Bake sales, haunted houses, pancake breakfasts, such church events are rife for potential sin. Croyle said, this year we had to eliminate the guess your weight booth from the annual church carnival because the envy and pride had gotten so bad and out of hand church events are about glorifying God, not violating his word. If you want to do that, you're no better than that cheap strumpet, Melissa Wyckoff. <laughs> now we laugh, but I've been at some turkey dinners. And let me tell you, all those sins happen within every one of our hearts. We might just not express them that way. And here's what you need to know. The world loves to divide people into two groups. Those who are good, those who are bad. Right? So, someone once said that there are two types of people in the world. Those who think there are two types of people 
than the rest of us. Here's the deal. You want, if you want to categorize people, there are those who are redeemed and those who are yet to be redeemed. Those who were lost and now are saved. Those, and by the way, we're all broken and we all need grace. None of us have graduated from the need of grace, forgiveness, and help. So I, I, that, I want that to set the tone for as we move forward. Because if not, I'll just fan every self-righteous cell in your body with these texts that are coming up, and I don't want that. See, I think it's safe to say we can all find ourselves entangled in sin pretty quickly. Um, however, back to the text now. To say that Jesus is working for the devil is a whole other level of sin. I mean, it's just it's a scandal. By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Jesus is driving out demons. And their plan, by the way, to say that is actually... It's perfect, except for the fact that it, it makes no sense at all. It makes no sense at all. And Jesus is going to expose their lies. And he does it by asking questions. Notice verse 17 through 22 now. But he, knowing their thoughts, never, don't miss that. Jesus asked more questions in the Gospel of Luke than, I never noticed it before, but if you'll underline every question he asked, and he already knows the answer. Why does he continually ask questions? Because he's, he's trying to expose them to, so that they might see. I want you to know Jesus loves these Pharisees. Never think that he hates them. He knows we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He, he knows that they're, they're enslaved in a domain of darkness. And many of them will come to faith, and many of them will be used mightily in planting churches in the book of Acts and throughout history. But right now, they cannot see so he said to them, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Now he's asking that question to highlight that. And look what he says. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then question, by whom do your sons, and he means your disciples, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place, his goods are safe. But when, the stronger, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Could be a little confusing, but let's, let's try to break it down real quick. Jesus is just dropping logic on them. It's, it's all he's doing. He's asking them a question, and he's causing them to think. And essentially what he's saying is, why would Satan empower me to go against him? Right? It's a great question. Why, why would he have me do that, right? And the, he's thinking, like, listen, guys, would a ruler of this world ever empower his enemies so that they, he could be taken over? Of course not right? It doesn't make sense, guys. Like You need to go back to the drawing table, right? That's essentially what he's saying, that, sh that Satan would shatter his own little cake kingdom, right, by empowering me, and, and I get to shatter it into a, a trillion pieces. Yeah, sure. It doesn't make sense. Even though Satan is evil, he's not stupid. That's what Jesus is saying to them, essentially. And so he then puts it back, he puts the argument back on them. By the way, side note, 
when you're interacting with people who are not convinced of the gospel, and maybe they're actually hostile towards the gospel, and they're always asking you these questions that you can never actually answer because they just keep asking them in rapid fire, like, well, what about dinosaurs? What about Sasquatches? Who ride unicorns? And all these different things. You make the mistake if you try to answer those questions in that moment. What Jesus does is he, he pauses. He doesn't need to prove reality. It just is. The burden of proof is always on the person who's lost, not the person who sees truth. So you're better, instead of answering all these questions that probably don't have anything to do with it, is to ask your own follow-up questions. Why do you ask questions about unicorns? Are they important to you? You see what I'm saying? And this is exactly what Jesus does. And yet he's constantly seeking to present grace and truth in his arguments. And so he does that. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then by who do your followers cast them out by? Are they working for Team Satan too? Well, that's a good question. But he doesn't stop there. He goes a little further and he drives home the point by saying, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, pause. That may not mean much to you, the phrase, the finger of God. But it would have meant a lot to the Pharisees if they were paying attention to their Bible. And guess what? They knew the Bible. They were professional Bible scholars, okay? The language of the finger of God is very specific. And actually, chances are very good, most scholars think, connects back to the book of Exodus, okay? Where Pharaoh's magicians had somehow duplicated some of these, these miracles that were happening, particularly the blood, the, the, the plague of the blood. Uh, blood and frogs, okay? But when it came to the gnats and the mosquitoes or whatever little insect it was, these little winged bugs, they could not do that miracle. And I want you to listen to the language in Exodus 8, 16 through 19, because this is exactly what Jesus is connecting to. He says, okay, this is Exodus 8, 16 through 19. Make a note, and I'm going to read. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. The magician said to Pharaoh, listen to what they say, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, what's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus is putting in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes that even the Egyptian magicians knew and, and, and were smarter and more honest as they could recognize the finger of God when faced with the truth. <clears throat> As Levi likes to say, he's so savage, and he is. He really is. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees' hearts were as blind as Pharaoh's. But these are the men who are representing God, and they can't recognize God. Or if they do recognize God, they're unwilling to recognize him. And so they harden their own hearts. They willingly choose to slander Jesus instead of seeking forgiveness. They need deliverance. You and I, we need deliverance. We need rescue. We need a rescuer 
And Jesus is that rescuer. Jesus uses a simple illustration in verses 21 and 22 to help his hearers understand their relationship to demonic forces, right? That they're at work in the world. I think sometimes we think that that's, that was for them. That was for that Bible time that, that demons were at work, right? Because it's just so weird and I don't want to sound uneducated, so why would I ever talk about that? But Jesus had no problem talking about it. He gives this, this picture. He says, Satan's like a strong man, like an armed guard. Think about that, right? And he's guarding a treasure, and, and he's guarding this house without fear. And people, Jesus is saying, are his possessions. He has them captive in the domain of darkness, right? They're enslaved to sin. They're oppressed by demons. And as long as no one stronger than Satan, Jesus is saying, comes along, then they're never going to be delivered. But what is Jesus getting at when he says this? He says, but when someone stronger comes along and comes on the attack, so you, you got to get this. Jesus is not on his heels. Jesus is pressing the war. He's invading Satan's house to bring people out of slavery, just like in Egypt. But he's going to do so much more than just split the Red Sea. He's going to spill his blood. He is the Lamb of God. I want you to see these things are so closely connected. The the Bible story is just one big story of God's grace saving people who want nothing to do with him. And that's where we find ourselves. See, Jesus is claiming that he is the one who has the power to walk right into the devil's house and take anything he wants. Oh, don't make the mistake of believing in dualism. Dualism is we have a good God and we have a bad God. And who's going to win? I don't know. Let's pray and hit like on Facebook. I mean, it's just so silly, though. It's just so silly. I mean, you ever see these little memes where you got Jesus in an arm wrestling match? And Satan always looks way tougher. It's like, hit like if Jesus is going to win. It's like, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. Listen, you ought not mess around with demonic things, but you do not need to fear. Why? Because God Almighty is in control and nothing can happen apart from his power, apart from his approval. He is good. He is all powerful and he's in perfect control. And this is what we see here. Satan has been in control up to this point on the earth at this time, although upon a leash, right? The Bible refers to Satan as the little G God of this world. Okay, you'll see that all throughout Paul's writings. And now, big G God, Jesus, fully God, fully man, incarnate, full of grace and truth is coming. And he's going to fulfill what was promised in Genesis chapter 3, when I'm going to have one who will come and crush your head, Satan. You will hurt his heel, right? You're going to wound him. He's going to die on a cross, but he will resurrect on the third day and he will defeat you. Satan has come, right? And he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come that they might have life and have life abundantly. But in order for that to happen, he has to die. And it looks like a mortal blow, but it's victory when he triumphantly resurrects from the grave. But even now, he's saying, I'm in charge. I'm casting him out. And you can do nothing about it. And now you're saying, I'm working for Satan, even though I'm making war against him. It's terrifying to see where sin can lead us. I just don't ever want you to think that like that's for them. Oh man, King David, a man after God's own heart. Small steps lead to great falls. Sin is nothing to be trifled with. Well, I'm saved. You are. 
unforgiven. You are. But you're also empowered not to engage in it. If you think it doesn't have consequences, it has consequences. Why? Because your heavenly Father loves you. And he will do whatever it takes to bring you back into his good grace. Right? Not that you could ever outrun his love. You can't. But his love for you is, is a love that is unlike any other. And he loves these, these Pharisees, even though they're entangled, even though they're blind. See, I think for me, it's very easy to love those who are extremely lost in irreligion, but sometimes I struggle to love those who are lost in religion. But that's just religion. <laughs> that whole thought's religious. Because you're making categories again. Jesus doesn't do that, and I'm thankful. So, Jesus is claiming, I'm coming to ransack Satan's kingdom. Satan's been in control, as I said, up to that point in that moment, but the kingdom of God has come, and now he's being overpowered. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus promised back in, in chapter 4 of Luke. I'm going to read to you once again, Luke, 17, Luke 4, 17 through 19. Jesus gets up, remember, he, he's in the synagogue, and he opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah as it was given to him, and it says, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is his mission. He has come to seek and to save sinners. He has come to destroy Satan. Everything he has come to do is to bring lost people into the good grace of his Father. Everything else just means. Even the death on the cross, he's doing that because that's what's necessary to bring sinners into the family. And, and it brings him joy to do this. Jesus is the stronger man who has come to dance on the head of Satan. That's who he is. And he makes no mistake about it. Do not make the mistake of thinking that like Jesus was some weak little rabbi hippie that just went around, you know, throwing out spirit sprinkles to everybody. He's not. He's fully God. He's fully man. He is gentle, but he's fierce. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is absolutely the lamb of God. And to make him either one in disproportion is to end up with a distortion of the gospel. And what we see here is the lion's fierceness. Satan, no more will you enslave my people. I've come to set them free. And man, we need to be reminded of this, right? Because no matter how wise, beautiful, or wealthy someone may be, apart from Jesus, let's just be honest, they're captives of Satan. And they're in desperate need of, of rescue. I think so many times we see the person who, who may be really down on their luck, maybe addicted to heroin, and we say, boy, they need Jesus. And we see the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and somehow that person doesn't. Lord, help us to see. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen, some of you, praise God, were raised in Jesus-loving homes and you don't actually remember a time you didn't love the Lord. I, that's a miracle 
It's just a miracle of grace. Praise God. But little old you at one point was in the domain of darkness, right? How do you know? I'll tell you how I know. Because I spent time with kids. And I spent time with them this week. And here's how I know, right? <laughs> hey, can I have a cookie, little Susie asked, right? And, and you're like, well, no, it's really late. And you just had dinner. And, or we're, not, we're about to have dinner. I don't want to spoil your dinner. So you say no. Why? Why? I want, well, little Susie, listen, I know cookies are good and you're sweet, but not right now. And they start stomping their feet. Why? Because they're rebelling against authority. Now, we laugh at that, and we, we should. I mean, don't, don't be like, you're in the domain of darkness, right? <laughs> Worshiping your daddy, Satan. Like, don't go silly on kids. They're, they're children, right? But that, that, that heart, that rebellious heart, is, is, it's, it's not something that happened out there and came in. Oh, it's because they, they watched SpongeBob. We... we Gosh, read the Bible. You're born in rebellion. You need delivered. No matter how sweet Susie is. Or Johnny. I don't want to pick on girls. Right? What's the point, though? Here, I got one point. And I think it's the point of the text. Forget what I've got. The point is, Jesus is the stronger man who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. That's the point. So followers of Jesus, listen, by God's grace, we should be humble. We should be grateful people. Because on, on one hand, we might be tempted to think a little more highly of ourselves. At least I'm not like those folks. You ever said that? <laughs> I have. On the other hand, we might be jealous of people who we think are just clipping along in life and be like, man, I wish I had that kind of talent and treasure in life and think somehow we're less. But, but, but at, at the cross, the ground is level. It's the great equalizer, right? Because if we're left to our own devices, you and I would still be Satan's captives. And, and if that's the case, then, then we need to take heart the truth of this passage, which leaves no room for pride or despair. Pride and despair are just... They just show religion. Right? Because pride looks at other people and says, what a loser. Now, you don't say that because everybody knows that then you're in sin. But you say it here and you think it here. And many times we can tell because of your friend group because you don't got anybody in your friend group that smells. You should have friends in, in your friend group that smell. If you need one, I, I smell right now. <laughs> but, but that's pride. But then despair is just reverse pride. Well, woe is me, poor me, nobody loves me. Like, both of those are thinking about you. And that's how religion works. When I'm doing well, look at me. When I fail, I'm such a scum. But the gospel brings humility and hope. I'm not all that in a bag of chips, but Jesus loves to save sinners like me. And when I've failed over and over again, thankfully Jesus has never failed, and I'm in Christ. So it just brings humility. And that humility is expressed right here in action with everybody you come in contact with. And, and by the way, 
If you're feeling like, oh, I've done those. Yes, you have. So have I. And that's why God's given us this gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can be convicted of sin but not crushed. Jesus was crushed for your sin. You don't need to be crushed when you sin, although it doesn't mean, oh, I'll just do whatever I want. No, 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 no. You confess. The life of a Christian is one of just continual repentance and faith. I am, I'm out of whack again, Lord. Oh, God, thank you for your grace. Creating me a clean heart. I want to love like you love, but I failed once again. I'm so thankful you never failed. You, you and I won't live that way if we don't live from the gospel. Oh, you just get so religious. I know because I know me. The ground is level at the cross, and, and I'm so thankful. Look, look at as Jesus continues in verse 23 through 26. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, Jesus is drawing a very hard line in the sand, and he's essentially saying there's no neutral people. There are no people in the middle. You're either in the domain of darkness or you're in my kingdom. There can be no other, right? So... Then he gives this, this, he continues on. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. Right? So the, that's strange. Well, there's demons, and then there's like levels of evil of demons. Hmm. Interesting. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Okay, what is that about? Okay, here's the deal. There are many choices we have in life, right? There are actually little to no importance, right? Pepsi, Coke, right? Chicken, fish, IPA, light beer. Let's not get carried away. (laughs) Right, let's not get carried away. However, when it comes to following Jesus, right? There can be no middle ground. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either in the kingdom of his beloved son or you're in the domain of darkness. Right? If you're not in him, he's saying, you're against me by default. You can't be neutral. Which is a terrifying thing to think about. The point that he's driving home is that simply just because a demon's been cast out of you doesn't mean you no longer are in danger or love me. That's what he's saying. Either Jesus will take up residency as the stronger man and guard you unto salvation for eternity, or you will be in greater danger when that demon returns and brings his friends to wreak havoc on your life. What's he saying? There can be no such thing as an empty spiritual vacuum. I've, I've seen people that the Lord has just delivered out of the worst case scenarios and they don't love Jesus. They just try to be moral and keep their house clean. But you're actually in greater danger in that moment, which is strange to think about, right? It's a little unsettling when we hear, and considering the culture that we currently live in, right? Essentially saying that Jesus, you know, essentially Jesus is saying to the religious hearers of that time, self-reformation and It will not help you. You must be born again. You need regeneration. That's what it means to be born again. To to just be a good moral boy or girl and clean up your outside is of no value. As a matter of fact, it's actually worse. 
You must be born again. You must be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or you will be, and I'm not saying everyone's possessed by demons, but you will be in the domain of darkness. That's what he's saying. So, so temporary moral reformation is no help. What I mean by that is behavioral modification. It's no help. It's inadequate. Right? Anyone who purges evil but puts nothing in its place, Jesus is saying, is in grave danger. That's unsettling to think about, right? Because our culture loves to talk about behavioral modification. Apart, I mean, we live in a very spiritual time. It's just not holy spiritual time. Very spiritual, right? I mean, think about the story up above that was kind of silly and long, and, and you guys, some of you liked it, some of you hated it, and that's cool. It was from the onion, right? They were talking probably mostly about behavioral modification, but no Holy Spirit power, which the, Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which they did not exhibit in that moment. I'm not saying that just because you have a bad moment, you're lost, but I'm saying you can be spiritually dead and in a church your entire life, and it does you no good when you stand before King Jesus. Here's the thing, though. Every, everyone's, this, is, this is the point of the gospel so many times. Jesus is the point of the gospel. But everyone's screwed up. Everyone's broken. Everybody's clingy. Everybody's jealous. Everybody's scared. Right? And, and even the people who have it more or less together on the outside are just, just as lost as you were before Christ saved you. It's, it's just a myth to think that they somehow got it, right? They're, they're much more like you and I than you would believe. Really, they are. I mean, so here's my encouragement. Try not to compare your insides with like what you feel with their outside. I know people who just feel so crushed by the way, you know, their heart just doesn't love the Lord the way they wish it would. But they love Jesus, and then they see someone else, and every time they look, they're, they're like on some third world country trip taking selfies, and like, boy, I wish I loved Jesus like that person loved Jesus. That person may or may not love Jesus. It's not my decision to make that, but they actually might be trying to earn a love that they already have. Just, we just live in such an Instagram world. Quit worrying about what everyone else is doing or thinking. And say, Lord, just clean my heart. We're going to get to, to Luke 18, where, where you've got the religious man. He goes in there, and Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of this scum. Now, he doesn't say that. That's my translation. This is why Jesus didn't pick me to write books. He chose Luke. <laughs> but then you got this other man, and he's just a tax collector, and he's a hated man. He walks right in there, and he just, he just has his head down, and he just, he just beats his chest. He says, have mercy on me. And everyone around, if, if they could be honest, would say, that guy who ties out of his men, right, and he's got the big hat and the phylactery on his forehead, he's amazing. He loves God. And Jesus says, he doesn't know me. He says, listen, he worships me with his lips, but his heart's far from me. You want to know what worship looks like that's pleasing to me? Look at that man. And every man says, the tax collector. You mean the pimp? I mean, because the worst kind of guy you could think of, that's that guy. This is Tony Soprano on steroids. I know I lost some of you on that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't look like man looks. This doesn't. 
quit trying to compare. Oh, her shorts are short. They might be. But where's your heart? Oh, man, this is so. Don't compare your insides with people's outsides. You may feel as though you don't measure up. Good news is you don't. You don't. I mean, give me a break. Jesus measured up for you. That's the point of the gospel. He, he is your righteousness. He is your perfection. He's your only hope. And if you're trying to do anything else, to be present in the presence of a holy God, you've got no chance. We all need Jesus. None of us have graduated from our need for grace. But if I could be honest, I've been in some pretty navel-gazing churches. <laughs> you know what I mean by navel-gazing churches? Um, where everybody has a profound focus on their inwardness of themselves. They focus on themselves. They talk about themselves. They, it gets very internal. They even employ techniques and, and technologies that seemingly will help change the heart. They sweep their house clean to quote the text we're in, and they have everything in an apparent order, yet they're empty. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. By the way, anyone who's trusting and believing in Jesus Christ has the gift of the Holy Spirit, period. But here's the thing. I've been in churches where that's applauded. Someone aspires to be just like them. I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna mention a family, but I'm not picking on them. The Duggards were held up as this picture of godliness. They need grace, just like we need grace, so I'm not putting them down. But here was the problem with that kind of thinking. that we, They missed the fact that we're sinners in need of salvation. We are sinners in need of salvation, not sufferers who are just in need of some self-help. They wrongly thought the problem was out there. And had they read their Bible, they would know the problem was right here. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem is internal. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, your greatest problem has been resolved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. See, many people think they just need a little moral cleaning. Wrong. The Bible teaches you're spiritually dead and you need resurrected. You need life. Jesus is life. The Duggard family and many other legalistic fundamentalists teach that we're sinners in need of grace, but they live in such a different way. They live as though the problem's out there, not in here. And, and here's the deal. The most egregious sin in that family was in the heart under the roof, not out there, and not on a TV show. Make no mistake about it. You want to know if you're drifting into moralism? Here's the, here's the tip. Whenever we make the focus of Christianity what we do rather than what Christ has done. That's when you know. It's just do it Christianity. But, but the gospel says it, it's finished. Jesus did it. Trust him. Does that mean we don't do anything? No, I'm not saying that. Don't be silly, but just stick with me. Jesus has commands, but it's always being before doing. We, if you've loved anyone ever, it's been a gift of grace. 
Because the only people we love perfectly is ourselves. <laughs> See, we, when this happens, it's because we've assumed the gospel. We've assumed the good news of Jesus Christ, and we've lost sight of the beauty that's before us. See, see, you and I will start to drift or we'll start to wander when we lose the wonder of the gospel. Yeah, I know that. That's just for those who need saved. No, no, no. We need the gospel every moment of every day. I wake up every day and need to be reminded that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Oh, I was chief. And Christ has died to set me free, to love him and to love other people. And, and the reason is because, let's look at verse 23 again. If that vacuum is not filled with the Spirit of God, then, then you're in danger. But if it is, notice, how do you know? It's mission. Be with me, right? Being with me and gathering with me. What does that mean? That means... And, and Jesus is going to make this very explicit through the rest of Luke, that if Christ has transferred you from the domain of darkness, he has brought you into himself. He has given you righteousness. He has given you freedom. He has given you forgiveness of sins. He's given you himself in the power of the Holy Spirit. And how you know that that power is at work in your life is not because you don't ever say a little cuss word. It's because you see people that are in the domain of darkness and you desire them to be saved. that's not at work in your life, ask why. And, and if you come back with the answer, I don't know that I know him. Praise God for revelation. And then ask for forgiveness. And ask him to save you. And he delights to do that. I can't tell you how many times I've interacted with churches that were filled with people who didn't know the Lord. And, and you hear the story when they, they start teaching and preaching the gospel. You have a deacon that's been a deacon for 17 years and says, this is really embarrassing, but I just got saved. And they made him a deacon because he behaved well and he worked hard and he filled slots. But he never loved the Lord. All of that just leads to despair. The gospel leads to life. Life abundantly. Over and over throughout the gospels, you'll see that you'll be filled with the Spirit. That Spirit will overflow into love and good deeds in your life. It's not you. If it's meant to be, it's not up to me. I promise you that. Jesus, help me. Help me to love. Okay, let's finish it up. Look at verse 27, 28. By the way, do you feel like you've, you, have to, you have to respond to Christ? That's good because so does the crowd. Look at 27 and 28. He said these things, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, I, I love this woman, by the way. Love her. Don't know who she is. Can't wait to meet her in heaven. Do you know how much courage it took to say that? Gosh, because Jesus just lit everybody up. And, and she's like, I want to make sure you know I'm not neutral, Jesus. I'm not neutral. This woman's not content with being religiously ambiguous. She said, blessed are you, blessed is the woman who cares. She declares her allegiance with King Jesus. And right there in that moment, it drew a line in the sand. And the Pharisees would probably look at her and say, she's with him. But she's not, a, she's not afraid to be known as a woman who loves the Lord. She's not afraid. And so here's my question. We're going to end with a question and then a prayer. 
How about you? Are you afraid to be known as a man or a woman who loves Jesus when everyone around you doesn't? God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word comes in and it clears out all the nonsense that many times is within our head, in our lives, in the, in the house we live in, in the city we live in. It comes and it's bright and it's shining and it, it illuminates the areas where we might be adrift. Father, I thank you, though, for the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus knowingly, willingly, joyfully came and lived the life that we could never live. He willingly, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He became sin, even though he had never sinned, so that sinners like us might receive forgiveness of sin and righteousness, so that we could be adopted into the family of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and kept forever by your great power. Oh, Father, I pray that you would just continue to reveal the stunning beauty of the gospel, that we would become what we behold and that we would behold Jesus Christ. Lord, for anybody who is just feeling a little crushed because maybe the text hit a little close to home when it comes to religion, may you just remind them right now that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that they have been set free from the trying to obey the law because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly in their place. Remind them of your love. May your kindness lead us to repent. May your kindness lead us to love you more. May your kindness lead us to love the people in our lives more. May your kindness lead us to love this city more so that the name of Jesus will become more famous in the hearts and the lives of the people we come in contact with. Oh God, we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.